everyone, and welcome back to the Green and Gold Rugby Show for another week. We're the show that's getting you over the game line on the hottest topics of Australian rugby. Whether you're listening to us via Eon Sports Radio or directly from our podcast feed, we're thrilled to have you. Um, Red Roberts joining you once again, and with me tonight, uh, Matt Rowley. How are you, Matt? And Hugh Cavill. How are you, Hugh? Evening, Reg. Excellent. Look, plenty to talk about again tonight, lads, and we have another great guest on, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, one thing I wanted to touch up on at the start of the show is that we heard, I think just this last 24 hours, that uh, Drew Mitchell, uh, former Red, Waratah, uh, Western Force, uh, uh, Toulon, uh, Wallaby, uh, Drew Mitchell is re- retiring from the game, so I think he's going to finish his season with Toulon. Um, so the question for you guys at the top of the show is your favourite Drew Mitchell moment or memory? Uh, Hugh Cavill, do you have one? Oh, yes, I get to go first because I think I've got – well, I, I, I was hoping that Matt wouldn't steal this one. He normally <laughs> does with mine. Um, is, um, look, the, the, the thing that got me when he announced his retirement, it's so – it seems like he's still in his prime because it was only a couple of years ago, which is my Drew Mitchell memory – in that semi-final against Argentina, where he he scored that you know broke through th- about seven tackles and set up the match-winning try for Adam Ashley Cooper, essentially yep. getting us into a World Cup final. And it's one of the great plays in the last sort of fifteen years in the Wallaby jersey, um, and uh, you know in, in a moment of real pressure to stand up like that and to set up a try is, is fantastic and one that will linger a long, long time in my memory. Very nice, Matt. Was that yours, or do you have another one? Yeah, no. Look, you know that's. Sort of important, but um, the, the, probably more important. Uh, probably about 150 podcasts ago, he actually came on, and, it, and this was when I was living in the UK, and um, I probably had a, a more of a pommy accent um, than I do now. And uh, <laughs> he, he came on the podcast, and he and he said, uh, "Where's that Harry Potter?" <laughs> referring, referring to my accent. So um, I, I, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, yeah. And then the other one was, uh, if you haven't, I don't know if you follow him on Instagram, but just today, you know those Instagram stories, they only stay for a day or so. So if you haven't seen it, follow him quickly on Instagram and you have a look. But he and Liam Gill are, both managed to get into the um, passenger seats on trots, like in, in a race in France. Oh, what? Yeah, fully in silks. Like sitting on these trotters as they, I don't know, is that what they're called as they're going around? Having an, they're, they're smashing beers before they go out. And, and Mitchell's there filming the whole thing, um, with a camera. Um, and it's just, it's absolutely hilarious. It's probably the funniest thing I've seen on an Instagram story. So anyway, they're, they're, they're two lighter hearted memories as well as obviously the best one was when he's got his dacked, when he got dacked. Um, it gives oh, you yes. a tackle, both the, the tackle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, the thing that I love about Drew Mitchell and, and I guess Guido and so on is he's he's, uh, he's loved life, hasn't he? He's enjoyed it, always had a smile, always enjoyed himself, which is to be credited. My my standout is actually, I mean, I remember watching him as a 19-year-old playing for Queensland. He was fullback and captain of the Queensland team. And he used to score regularly these sort of 70, 80-metre tries, just you know, counter-attack or slicing into the back line and, and just running away. And you knew then he was going to be a superstar and, you know, um, ultimately did play for Queensland not too long after. I think he scored a try for the Wallabies in his first test at, you know, stepping through Dan Carter. So had some genuinely brilliant pieces of individual play and, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't wish for a better career, I don't reckon. He's, he's, he's done it all. So full credit to him and then we hope he uh, enjoys what's next. And uh, let's get on to the rest of the show, shall we? 
All right, now, as mentioned before, we do have another special guest on the show tonight. Might I add another former Wallaby front rower uh, in Ben Darwin. Thanks for joining us, Ben. That's a pleasure, Reg and Matt. Now, mate, you've uh, you know, been involved with both the Rebels and the Force previously and obviously uh, the Brumbies as a player, but you're here to talk to us in your capacity um, of CEO of, of Gainline. Is that correct? Can you tell us a bit about that before we get stuck into our burning questions? Um, CEO is not a very big organisation, so we'll say, we'll say director <laughs> for the moment. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's basically data analytics and it's just looking at it from the perspective of um, how much does understanding affect performance, uh, both in the long term and the short term? So we've been looking at, at three different forms of models. One is how competitions are run. The second is um, how franchises um, uh, are run. And the third is how representational models, such as you know the Olympics or such as the Wallabies, um, are affected by um, what we call cohesion analytics, which is the level of understanding between the athletes. All right, interesting. So uh, a lot of our readers would have um, seen a, a great in-depth interview with you on the Fin Review a couple of weeks ago, and that sort of provoked a lot of response and people keen to get you on, and we've obviously had you on before. So it's a great time to have you on. There's a lot of discussion at the moment about the impact of, of cutting a team with Super Rugby, a lot of gnashing of teeth, a lot of fans disengaged and frustrated. But I guess we want to ask the question and, and look at perhaps some of the positives of it, and, and ask you the question of, of what the impact of reducing a, the number of teams might have on, on the Wallaby performance, Ben. I think that there really there's, – there's a, there's a couple of things that are taking place, and I think just first first in um, first of all, I think one of the hardest things about all this is how painful it is. Um, if, you, if, you, uh, if you ever listen to a conversation with David Moffat about, about the reduction of uh, – of Welsh regions from nine to five and ended up being out four. He talked a lot about how painful that period was, but the positives that actually came about for Welsh rugby at the end of it, both financially and on the performance basis. So it appears the ARU now are reasonably convinced, they think, that four teams is the best model. And, and what we're dealing with here is, is two things at play. One is if you provide more opportunities to more players, does a greater level of depth um, improve the national team? Or um, the, the other part is, if they're all playing together more often, does that also help the national team? Which is a little bit what, what terms have happened with the, um, with the Welsh now. Um, in all of these factors, you've got the skill that's being developed. Now, one of the things that, that we've definitely found is the best way to develop skill is through contractual stability and alignment. And at the moment, on the measures that we're using none of the Australian franchises are above any of the New Zealand franchises and I think four of the South African franchises in terms of contractual stability or alignment. So what it means is that as it stands of, of today, we're not producing talent as quickly in terms of our ability to increase the skill level of those players as we used to. So one of the numbers we come up with this idea is called the TWI. Now, when I was at the Brumbies, it was functioning around 85 to 90%, which was very similar to the Crusaders. Um, the Reds used to be about 90%. And so what it means is your players become better faster. Now we've got these five teams. Um, there's a lot more flow between the clubs. And so when you get flow uh, of athletes between different clubs, um, you stop improving your skill level as an athlete and you start trying to align to the new people coming in and the new ideas 
and that just slows everyone's skill development down, um, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, Ben, can I jump yeah, in there? It's Matt. Um, so why is it different with New Zealand? I mean, they got five super rugby teams. Um, they've got, you know, whatever is it, the ITM Cup, or whatever it's called now, which has got plenty of teams circulating around. Why do they have better cohesion than our five super rugby teams with, I guess, the NRC? So um, each of our different teams has different levels of contractual stability and different levels of alignment. And I think if you go back to the late 90s, one thing we saw with the South African teams is they went from what was the top five Curry Cup teams became the Super Rugby teams into this sort of regionalisation where multiple Curry Cup teams was feeding into the Super Rugby team. And if you remember in the late 90s, there was a there was a bit of a drop-off. They went from having two finalists in 96, 97 to by the time 98, 99, 2000 came around to basically I think three of the bottom four normally were the South African teams. And the only team that didn't change that scenario was the Sharks, and they actually maintained their strength through that period. Um, so what we've done now is we've, we've introduced the NRC, and Queensland and New South Wales now have multiple feeder clubs in the same fashion. So when Super Rugby finishes, the guys will split off into their various NRC versions, and they'll go and play with each other professionally in those environments, so they won't keep training with Queensland and New South Wales. They'll come back together later on. And, and uh, what we've seen now is, is a bit of an advantage for the Brumbies and the Force and a little bit to the Rebels um, in that they've now got that alignment in a singular fashion. And if you go, if you go back to the late 90s, um, the Brumbies and the Crusaders were fundamentally the only teams who were built in that way. Now, if you look at who's producing all the talent right now in New Zealand rugby, the high TWI, singularly aligned clubs, Hurricanes, uh, Crusaders, um, Chiefs, to the most part, are singularly aligned, high-cohesion teams. So that's kind of their fundamental advantage at this point. So, Ben, what, what's the impact? So we have to focus on something like this, B. So we're saying that four teams provide uh, a greater opportunity for players to, I guess, have that consistency of, of approach, consistency of, consistency of teammates, and building up combinations within the team. And is that right? Does that then flow on to the success of the, the national team after that? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it actually functions up and down the entire system as it, as it plays out. I mean, if you look at, let's say, Rugby League, for example, the Australian Kangaroos have done much better since State of Origin um, took place, particularly yep. with a very strong Queensland team. The Queensland team are mostly playing in three clubs, Cowboys, Storm and Broncos. Since, since the last 11 years, this Queensland State of Origin team has been approximately seven times as cohesive as New South Wales. So that's an example where it's affecting up and it's affecting down the chain. Um, so all, you know, talent development is one part and then cohesion is another part. If you look at all the World Cups, they generally tend to be dominated by the, the national teams with less, the drawing from less clubs. Even when England won with, you know, three, there was a big domination of Leicester players within that environment. 07 was Bull Sharks. 11 Crusaders, Hurricanes, and also 15, um, 91, you know, Queensland, 99, Queensland, 95, Transvaal. So um, it tends, and 87 was possibly Marist in Auckland. So it tends to be an odd set of coincidences that those guys are coming together. And, and I think the question I would ask you is this. Did, for, for Jason Little and Tim Horan, did the fact that they were playing at Queensland together help them to be better for Australia? And, the, and what we want to find out is by how much. Yeah. So I, don't, I don't necessarily know the answer to that, 
but I would say at, in some form it helped. And so, therefore, the size of the system is going to impact your ability to, to perform at a national level. So can I take a by extension of that, Ben, can I, when we're looking at Wallaby selection this year as an example, now we've got the five teams and we have to deal with that, and you're right, we've got extensions underneath. Is there merit then in selecting combinations? For instance, should we be looking at, you know, picking someone like Robbie Abel at hooker because he's got a combination with Alatoa and, um, and Scotty CO there? Does that, I guess that's part of your research and the analytics you're trying to look for, does that provide you more benefit to the team than bringing in Tolly Latu or Stephen Moore into that combination or Sekopi Kepo and so on? Is that the type of stuff you, you, you cover off in that sort of um, um, well, Yes, but here's the hard part. Let's 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 take it again back to, to New South Wales Rugby League. If New South Wales Rugby League just picks the West Tigers, yeah, what are they yeah. missing out on? Is they're missing out on talent, aren't they? They're missing yeah. out on certain guys who they want to have play for New South Wales. So when your system is functioning against uh, a, um, a, a a representational team being cohesive, you're always going to be fighting one way or the other. So. If we let's say let's say we said right let's go and just pick on form which is what New South Wales rugby league do basically every year they pick on form um, th- then then you're going to be missing out if you take rugby for example you'd say okay Stephen Moore's not in form well why is he not in form well he's just moved clubs okay well, what happens when you move clubs well it takes the average person three years to hit their peak once they move clubs so is he underperforming because he's not a good player or is he underperforming because he's just moved. And so under duress, he's naturally throwing Brumby's lineouts when he's playing for the Reds. So, you know, same with Tatafu Palata now this year at the force. He's struggled, and so Tess has actually been a better option for them to start. So I think one of the biggest things is context, is, is you, you can't necessarily uh, uh, look at people in the same context if they've just moved. Queensland had the same thing with Nate Miles. He played, um, went to Manly, and he didn't play particularly well, but there was no one left to pick, so they just keep picking him, and he just happens to play off for Queensland. Um, mm. And so, so this is an, an understanding of if you just pick people in combinations, you miss out on skill, but you also need to look at the context of those footballers and understand, okay, Stephen Moore has an innate level of talent. There's no question about that. And if he plays for Australia with those guys who know and understand him, he'll perform better. He's underperforming at the moment comparative to what Queensland need, but at the same time, it may part of the, part of the causation behind that is not that he's having a drop-off in form, but because his teammates don't necessarily know all the cues that are required for them to work in a, in a manner that's the most effective. So, mate, um, just talking about just carrying that forward, I mean, you, there's a number of, um, you know, corollaries yeah, you can right. take from that. I mean, it's, yeah, kind of, I think the, the title of this uh, podcast is Mind Blown. But, um, you know, thinking about the Wallabies and their success at the World Cup um, in 2015... Um, how would you trace that through? I mean, I guess they kind of imported a, a lot of connections, right? So when you brought, like, Gitto and Adam Ashley Cooper and um, Drew Mitchell um, into the whole thing, I guess, was were you basically buying in those that cohesion? Uh, I mean, buying in is the wrong term, but it's like... Drafting in, I should say. It's I mean, like... Um, yeah, it's, it's, no, it's, 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 you know, they had only just left those guys. And so most of the Wallabies who are continuing to play have played with those guys on a domestic level. Mm. So it's like they've just left the party and you call them back and say, come in. But if you call them back to a party two years later, they'll come in and they won't know anyone because a whole bunch of new kids have come in. 
the difficulty with the overseas-based player model is the longer you do it for, the harder it is to make it work. And so, um, you know, if we're in a scenario where you've got, you know, Matt Giddo's coming back into the Wallabies three years later, there's a test, there's a test centre who's he's working with, and so he comes back in and he goes, "Hi, how are you going? You know, should we play in the centres together? How do you, uh, how do you uh, defend? And when do you, when do you shoot? When do you hold?" And I think if you want to look at an example of that, is is Nonu. You know, when Nonu left the Hurricanes, he was in extremely strong form for the All Blacks and for the Hurricanes. When he went to play domestically elsewhere, he was very poor uh, with Auckland, with Rico, with the Highlanders. Um, but whenever he would go back to play for the All Blacks again, he was he was he was okay. Now, if Nonu then sort of goes overseas and he comes back again, Conrad Smith's no longer there. So they, you know, he wouldn't be functioning back into a relationship that he was comfortable with. I know I've sort of gone a bit off tangent there, but um, that that got us some you know healthy results. In, in the World Cup. The other thing you understand with World Cups too is is that the non-cohesive teams in World Cups actually do much better because they get that extended period of time together. So, you know, you couldn't pretty much design a system worse than Japan, um, you know, with 16 domestic teams or whatever they're chopping and changing to this month. Um, you know, certainly the, the Sunwolves are going to help them on that front, the Japanese players that are playing for the Sunwolves. But, you know, in the lead-up to that tournament, you know, Eddie got something like 160 days with them, which was un- absolutely unprecedented. And so they come into that tournament and they've got a cohesion where they would never normally have it. Now, some teams like France, they'll get really good towards the back end. You know, they'll lose to Samoa in the early rounds, but they've got a shot, you know, six or seven games in. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think the thing to understand with World Cups is that they don't actually function in the same fashion that normal, um, you know, round-robin competitions would. So when... You know, if the All Blacks come together in next week, they put 50 points on everyone else, no question. But if you get the Wallabies together for 10, 15 games and then play the All Blacks, you'll do better. And you'll see that through the context of, of our seasons at the moment is we're starting out pretty badly in tests. I think the last letters, like the first letters I last year was by 50 or something. And then towards the back end, towards the European tour, we did better. So the non-cohesive teams will improve over six to eight games bit of time together. And so these kind of things go in cycles again. And so it, it, it functions, you know, first of all, at domestic level and then and then how many games you get together. So, you know, the early rounds of the World Cup, all of a sudden USA will look like they're world beaters and Romania and Georgia, they get much closer than ever, anyone ever imagined. And part of that's because World Rugby's now given them a three-month um, uh, period into the World Cup that they would never usually get. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So how long does that period take? I mean, should... should should the Wallabies be building now? Like, I mean, is, is, is that is it two years to build that sort of cohesion, or we, can we get it done in a year? How far out should we be looking at that, that that next World Cup? Well, I think I think everything helps, and I think the hard part is is if you just say tomorrow, right, we're going to play the same starting fifteen. Like um, in the NRL last year, Cronulla Sharks had basically the same team for twenty six weeks straight, or something, unless the city and the UPL. But the problem with that is, is if you get injuries, you're in deep trouble. So if you get a couple of guys out, you don't really have a backup. Um, so, you know, uh, having playing the same team all the time for two years straight will give you something, but it's a risk. So you, you, as much as you can, what we try to look at is, is this a system that naturally functions in a cohesive manner? I mean, if you look at, if you look at domestically around the world now, I'd say Leinster is probably the best system. And when Leinster reserves play, they actually seem to get better because most of them have come from about 
five or six schools in Dublin, um, mm. and their A programs functioning all the time. They've come through the under twenties. Um, whereas, say, you know, a club like Bath, which is buying players in and out all the time, when they get injuries, their their, their team really falls away quite dramatically. So, um, it's it if even if you make one set of decisions about let's say let's build and and particularly with test football. If you don't have it on a domestic level, you have to have it on a national level for an extended period of time. So that's why England had to be together for so long to be successful in 03. Because, yes, I think six or seven came from Leicester, but they didn't have what we had. But So they have to play tests for, like, a couple of years. I mean, each different system functions in a different a different way. Um, so, you know, um, just even if we just decide... Like, New South Wales will never fix the problem just by playing for New South Wales instead of Origin. Three games is not enough. So there's different things that you can do um, around the decisions you make, but um, you know, uh, we we had at a certain point the most cohesive test team in the world. Mm, that's amazing, and, and so, mate, so and, and so to that, um, and probably where that cohesion came from, and thinking bringing it back to where we are now with Super Rugby, um, you know, you're saying you know re- reducing it by. One team will help improve that cohesion. What would be, and not even talking about which teams that they should be, um, you know, what's kind of the optimum sort of number, theoretically? Is it, you know, is it four or is it less than that? Well, let's, let's, um, I, I think that the, the issue about it is, is actually not about the number, but it's about the alignment of talent. So if you look at German football, German football 2014 won the World Cup, and they have the Bundesliga, they have a very big competition. However, all of the talent flows into Bayern Munich, and I think eight of their starting 11 have played for Bayern and German under you know, 14s or 16s for a very extended period of time. But if you can imagine, imagine if we had a super rugby system whereby we said, right, we're going to have 10 teams or five teams, but all of the best talent has to go to one particular club. How would that impact the last club? So in, in fairness to the AU, what they've said is, okay, we want an even spread of talent fundamentally to go across the five. But then that's going to have a different impact on the national team. So um, it's, it's, it's really about um, the flow of talent and how that, how that talent is um, uh, uh, I don't know, dissipated or, or um, decided upon about where it goes to. And then how good are we actually judging that talent? That's another, a whole other question is if we did decide to like funnel all into one team, would that actually mean that they that that team also becomes the most effective? And I think um, you know, a really good example of this in an island where a team with theoretically the bottom of the barrel talent was, which was Connaught, happened to be the most cohesive team in the comp but won it. Um, and so um, you know one of the things for me is no matter what we have, I think we need to under we we need to decide what could we afford to, to build contractual stability? What can Australia afford um, where we could, we could enable, uh, you know, whether it be two or four or five, um, for all those clubs to have contractual stability given the, given the current environment, given the Colpac agreement, given the way that um, uh, the talent is flowing into Europe, um, how many would work and therefore how many would then be producing talent at the right speed if that makes sense? Well, wow. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting concept because, I mean, I, what it's putting paid to is the whole idea of, you know, more teams at any comp is better. And, 
And what you're actually saying is, you know, as much as you can, really, you want to go one-to-one-to-one-to-one sort of thing, if you see what I mean, um, and really get that, that, that strong alignment as talent and teams filter up, if I've got it right. Yeah, I, th- I think I think one to one is is difficult, and I think that you know Argentina is going to be an interesting example. Yeah. It's going to work or not? Um, um, you know, certainly uh, one thing I think you can't underestimate was the um, the Pampas fifteen has had on Argentinian rugby, which was the team they had based in the Curry Cup, and a lot of those guys played for Argentina in the last World Cup, um, and so that I think it's helped. It's, it was pretty much ignored when it occurred, but they basically had the team for two or three years playing in the Curry Cup together, um, and now they've got that team in Super Rugby. And now one of the one of the things that also takes place is you can't just um, uh, have a squad and just keep rotating it. And I think if you look at the period through the mid nineties, I think on average Greg Smith brought in one new Test player per Test. So we actually had an aligned cohesive system at that point, but we just kept churning all the time, churning players very, very quickly, and therefore the results didn't come. So there's these, there's all these different dynamics that we're trying to measure at the moment. Um, you know, um, you know, rate of churn, rate of turnover. Um, if you keep a team together for two weeks, five weeks, what are the positions where it's the most important? You know, Jesus. there's a whole bunch of other stuff we're looking at. That's incredible. Pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? And so, mate, here's a just getting back to Super Rugby. And so, if you, if you look at the Tars, right, and you say the Tars are trying to to, to try and build back towards being a, a credible threat. Um, and if you if they said right, what they should try and do is keep as much cohesion as they can. But there's going to be natural, you know, they, they're going to get natural defection um, or churn. Um, to at least to some extent that they can't control over the next few years while they try and build that. Where should they go to to find their talent then? Does that say, well, they should just, you know, wherever that gap is, they should then go and look at club. Well, so where do they go? Do they go to NRC? Do they go to club? Do they go to schoolboy? What's the natural thought process that the selectors, say, for example, for the Tars should go through to do that? I think first things first for the Tars, and um, I mean I've been saying it for three years, so I'm going to be, you know, um, <laughs> I'm pillar for saying it. But um, when we measure Super Rugby teams, we actually don't measure it as 16 Super Rugby team games. We measure it as NRC plus Super. So what that means is that the the if your team is playing Super Rugby together and NRC together you get an eight to nine game advantage through that period. And I think a couple of years ago, the force were actually resting their guys through NRC. The last year they played them, and I think it's a pretty good improvement. Mm. Where you see the most improvement is in your ability to defend. I mean, what I noticed with Australian rugby, if you take the last 10 tests we played against the All Blacks now, and you take the last 10 tests in 2000, we're pretty much scoring at the same rate. We're scoring now, I think, 17 tries in the last 10 games, and back then we scored 20 tries in 10 games, so not that different. The difference is is that we're letting in 38, and back then we let in 17. So there's not that, you know, our ability to score tries is not the issue, but we're winning games 12-10 or 17-15. I've totally forgotten your question. I apologise. No, I was saying, in terms of the TARS, in terms of the TARS, the NRC is the first place you have to go to. Um, 
And so to, to the, if you're going to split them off in the, in the fashion they are at the moment, and the NRC is absolutely fantastic. It's just the structure at the moment that's just hindering a little bit Queensland New South Wales in the, in the alignment. So um, the difficulty is how do you – there's a political background to this and there's all these things churning around in terms of club rugby and you want to have fairness – um, you know, that are that are at play, whereas the Brumbies get this wonderful advantage, singular team underneath. You know, the, the force got an advantage. The Rebels did, but unfortunately most of them are injured at the moment. Um, and they introduced a whole bunch of new guys this year. But uh, the, for, for the Tars, it's always been harder. That's why they only ever won one title, because they have to play a lot more games together as New South Wales than we did as the Brumbies, because we had the Kookaburras, because we did 26 games a year. Mm. So um, once you start to see that, you... You know, you've either got to be together or longer or more patient, but probably the person I feel for the most in this is Daryl Gibson. I don't see them to be underperforming at all comparative to what they've currently got. And I'm not talking about talent, I'm just talking about the alignment of the team, is that their disadvantage is so great that functionally they should be performing where they are. There isn't any team in Super Rugby that's basically underperforming at the moment. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> it's incredible. I reckon we could go on for a couple of hours, Ben, and I, uh, you've got my dream job, it sounds like. It's just <laughs> going through, through stats and trying to find the trends. This is incredible. Look, I think we are. We will wrap it up there, Ben, and, and really appreciate your time and your insight. It's, it, it is literally fascinating, and, and I know, um, you know you've got hopes to, to, to work further in the in the game here in Australia, we hope you do because it's 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 quite a, a next level level of analysis, which we, we it's what you know we've said it before. Australian rugby used to pride itself on its intelligence, and it, it feels like that's missing in the game. So it'd be great to see that come back in some capacity. So Ben, really appreciate your time, and would love to have you back on the show again sometime. Hey, I'd, I'd love to. I, I think um, if I could just comment on your comment, I, I think that what you're saying about Australian rugby is something that we made up to make ourselves feel ah, more intelligent okay. than we were. I think yep. that we had some really dumb luck, um, yep. you know, in what we had. We, we had this incredible advantage over New Zealand rugby. Um, and, um, you know, it, I mean, you're talking to someone who was actually part of three expansion franchises. So yep. I literally drank the Kool-Aid yep. and was, and was like, gung ho, let's go down this path. Let's, bring in more players. I was quoted on that many times. I just had to think about it and thought, I wonder how this is affecting everything. So, um, you know, we've only been we've only been successful over the All Blacks for five or more consecutive games in three occasions over the last 140 years. And even then it was like 52, 53%. Like we were only just over them. And on all of those occasions, it was a lot of things falling into place for us that gave us that opportunity. We've never been dominant. We've just been a little bit better for a little bit of time. Um, so I, I think that, that, you know, maybe it was what we might call unconscious competence. It was something taking place we didn't necessarily understand, but, of course, we loved it and we all pat ourselves on the back. But um, how to recapture it in, in some ways is, is the next part. So I don't think we've been super intelligent. I think we've just been a little bit lucky on, on, on many occasions, as I was myself. That's great, Ben. Love your insight, mate, and, and uh, we wish you well and look forward to having you on again. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Well, that was fascinating. I, you know, we had Pete Playford on the podcast last year who was uh, insightful and, and now Benny Darwin. And what I love about it, and he, he called me out there about the intelligence of Australian rugby, is, and that's not something we've heard much, it's just a willingness to hear, to have a different perspective. And, and that's not something we get much in Australian rugby. Um, Hugh, what was your thoughts on that? Well, look, I stayed silent for most of that. I mean, look, 
to be honest, that correlates with a lot of my research as well. What Ben was saying, <laughs> uh, you know, was just, he was he was saying a lot of things that I've I've found as well. So um, yeah, it's it's um yeah, it was it was fascinating to hear. It's as he said, different perspective and a really different way of looking at it, and that continuity aspect. Um, there's a lot of things you can pick out, but. Um, I, sp- I suppose we can look at the Reds and the Waratahs, who are probably playing a bit below their station. Especially look at the Reds and the and the yeah, talent exactly. of the team and the talent that they have brought in, and the Steve Moore, George Smith, um, and these sort of guys, and, and why they're underperforming. It's the question we asked last week, Reg, and 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 that's a, Ben Darwin just given us a, a pretty cogent answer in that you know that, that this stuff takes a lot of time, and and um, it's why I think you know the great even even the good Australian teams of the last decade or so have have taken three years to get it together and then they've it's sort of been a slow build and then they've finally got there. So um yeah, just um fascinating. This is a, yeah, we, we could have spoken to him all night I would have, would have thought and, and um seems to have a lot of stuff um up his sleeve. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Could could have gone forever. It, it just makes uh, the rest of our five burning questions or our four remaining burning questions just four very quick questions we'll <laughs> get to answer yeah. pretty quickly. But th- th- it was great, Matt. That wasn't it. Yeah, no, Matt. Is that, is that- <laughs> all right. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's get on to question two. Um, and it is uh, so talking about cutting teams. One of the teams that has been uh, excluded from. Uh, consideration being cut by the AU is the Brumbies. And the question is, is that fair? Should the Brumbies be excluded or, or should they be up there on the cutting board alongside the, the Rebels and the Force? Uh, Hugh, what do you think? No, no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro the Brumbies staying, Reg. I, I think they've got too much of a, a pedigree for producing talent and um, – and for and for moulding that into into wallabies, and that was you know earned from the from the late nineties on on and even until the last few years where they have been our best friend, best team, and even this year you know where on paper they probably should be third or fourth, and and they're still way up there even though they had a bit of a down game against the rebels on on um, on Saturday. But um, I think the thing that works in their favour that that you know we still don't as much as it's great that we're developing talent in Perth and Melbourne, but most of our talent still comes from from Sydney, still comes from Brisbane, um, and broadly you could say New South Wales and Queensland, and and the ACT is very is close to them. Canberra's close um, to both of those centres, and and is a pretty appealing um, place to go still for young rugby players trying to make their way in the game, um, and they've got that. Uh, that class and that pedigree that, that the other two teams don't have. And look, their finances have been up and down and, they, and their support base is pretty limited being because Canberra's obviously a pretty small population. But look, they've made it broadly work up until now. And, and um, I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in backing the teams that have, that have got the track record on the field and, and the rugby has to come first. Um, the integrity of the rugby has to come first, and 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 that's what the Brumbies have been doing for the last fifteen twenty years, and and I see, uh, and and it'd be, to me, a, a real, you know, it'd be a poor move to put them on the chopping block because they've just had so much success on the field that that uh, looking at the other four teams, we we can't afford to shed the one thing that's been going working well for us. Matt, do you think any differently to that? No, well, I just guess I throw in what Ben was talking about, which is. You know, Brumbies yeah. have always had that thing going for them, which is this, this there's not a lot of feeder. Um, you know, it's pretty one for one. So you know, now that I think about it that way, it's kind of like, um, yeah, there'd be yeah, a bit of a no-brainer. Well, no-brainer not to take it away. I mean, what, what I've been interested by, I guess, is how the tables have turned on 
everybody. I mean, you know, we've always been the West Coast Elitist Club here, so we haven't thought this way, but, um, you know, to watch the media change and the number of people that you've seen mm. go from being, well, it's got to be the force that's got to go because, you know, the perennial underachievers and everything else. And as we've got closer to the actual chop, um, to see how, you know, opinions have changed and some, you know, suddenly are people like, oh, well, actually they've come a long way and developed a game somewhere where we never thought we'd have one and all the rest of it. So I've, I've been fascinated to watch that happen. But, um, to your original question, it doesn't feel like the Brumby should go. I think the people who are probably skating through and through circumstance and would be feeling pretty happy and lucky about it. And here's the thing, like, if you're a fan, you don't care. And I don't blame anybody who's a fan of the Rebels, you wouldn't give us stuff. Um, like my mate Daz down there. Um, you know, <laughs> why, why should you care? But but I guess at the end of the day, you've got to say, right, you know, it's it's kind of their circumstances that are pulling them through by having the barrier of someone who actually owns the joint. Yeah, look, the one thing I'll say about the Brumbies, and they've copped some flack from some of those people looking to point flack somewhere, is around player development, or at least producing local talent and, and there's some trickling through but they probably don't have the same numbers particularly for a team that's been around since 96 at least professionally but what they do is develop talent you know that, that's how they established their whole game back in 96 when they recruited all those so-called uh, has-beens or, or never-beens from the other states and developed them through and produced that amazing team in the uh, in the late 90s and they've continued and Hugh you said it bang on I mean I think I tipped them to be last in the conference or maybe second last in the conference this year and uh, they're you know they're on top and they're playing damn good rugby a blip against the Rebels aside so it, it, they've got a talent they've got a system there that, that is working and, and, and I don't think we'd be cutting off our own arm to spot our face or whatever the, state, the statement is but <laughs> we, we need no to spot, spot my face but you know we need the Brumbies in the in the in the Super Rugby, there are uh, too good to miss. Your nose isn't that big, mate. Yeah, it's getting there. Um, all right, next question, guys, is uh, about the Rebels. So they had a good win on the weekend. We also saw uh, their uh, owner, Coxie, come out with a pretty um, ballsy statement against the ARU. So the question is, which was the biggest statement by the Rebels last weekend, Matt? The the win or the uh, the CEO? Well, look, I mean, I saw the, I didn't actually see the, the CEO statement, there you go, but I saw their uh, press release, which was pretty punchy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, when it was using the words, was it cut or chop? Cut or chop. <laughs> in, in, in inverted commas, that was pretty funny. Um, but I thought they're, they're standing up to the Brumbies, especially with two men off the field, um, was pretty remarkable, um, especially considering how much fight they'd put up in the previous matches this season. Um, so, actually, I think they probably did their bigger, their better talking on the field than they did off. Yeah, look, you go through that statement, it was pretty it was pretty out there, but there are a few questionable statements I don't quite believe. And, you know, the questions about the unconstitution, uh, you know, the, uh, the decisions made against the Constitution, I'm not quite sure that's right. And, and uh, things like... Um, uh, what was it? Cox said something about um, yeah, whether it's a bridge constitution, but also it suggested that the funds that the ARU make from cutting a team should go back to the remaining teams um, directly, which seems strange to me. But great win on the weekend, or very impressive win on the weekend at least. My big issue with it was the the tiny crowd, and as a Reds fan, I can't talk too much about big crowds because we only had eleven thousand at Suncorp Stadium, but seven and a half thousand uh, at uh, at Melbourne there for a home game when they're under the pump to show local support. It's not a great look, is it, Hugh? 
Oh, it's a horrible look, Reg. You've you've made my point exactly. I mean, the the the, the I mean, there's there's alarm bells ringing there for the you know it's it, the Brumbies are still you know a pretty big attraction and and should draw a crowd down there. It should draw something that's beyond what they achieved. And under the, with the week and the attention that they've been having and and the supposed talk that you know from those that want to support the Rebels in that rugby strong in Victoria and and we should have a presence down there um, to have a crowd of seven and a half thousand is frankly embarrassing. And, and the bigger alarm bells is for what, well, what if the rebels stay, you know, well, you know, how is this, how is this at all sustainable going forward? It was a good win from the rebels. I think the Brumbies um, should have done a lot better um, to, to think that they were playing, um, you know, with against 13 for 10 minutes and against 14 for another 10 on top of that. Um, and they had some pretty fortuitous refereeing decisions go their way. I, I, I think um, they'll be very disappointed. But look, f- for the Rebels, they're, they're swinging haymakers, and, and that's great, and they're putting up a fight on the field, and that's great. So let's just hope the support comes with them because, you know, um, if they survive the chop, so to speak, um, and they're still pulling crowds in the mid seven to 8,000, yeah. well, that's just going to that's just gonna send them back down the gurgler. I mean, the only crowd that did, did worse, Reg, I mean, as we've discussed a few times, did you see the crowd in, uh, in the Bulls game? Was it the Bulls game? Africa? That was diabolical. Was it about 5,000? 5, I mean, that's that's rugby league on a Monday night numbers. I mean, mm. that's that's horrible for, for Pretoria, that you're one of the legendary grounds in, in world rugby um, and for a supposed rugby mad part of that nation, um, that is that is very very worrying indeed. Yeah, and against one of the expansion teams as well. No, and, that, and that's not to mention what the TV figures were for the for the Australian games over the weekend. And could, can I quickly go on for tangent? I know we're rapidly churning throughout our time here, Reg. But who is the scheduling geniuses that 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 scheduled oh. that long weekend? of fixtures where we had only two games in Australia and both of them were on the same day. I mean, this is what we talk about with the, the natural um, problems with this competition and why people are uh, uh, turning up their noses at it. I mean, I'm, I'm at home for a long weekend. I want to watch some rugby. I want to watch some Aussie rugby and I get two games and they're, 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 I sit there on Friday night, Saturday night, so, sorry, Friday night, Sunday yep. night, Monday with, with, with not a game to watch and instead I've just got AFL and league. I mean, what, yeah. what, what am I supposed to do? Even, even worse, there's two Aussie, Aussie teams having a bye. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. you, you know, it should have been a Tars Force derby somewhere, you know, on a, mm. on a Sunday Arvo. It would have been absolutely perfect, absolutely nuts. It's the issue of Sands are being in control, and Scott Fardy made a pretty strong comment on, on it today, Tuesday, about the faceless men of Sands. He's exactly right. No one knows who they are, what they do, but they're they're not making uh, the right decisions for the, the code as a whole, particularly in Australia. Look, look, mate, um, look, while we're talking, yep. while we're talking code, though, we can't let this go, which is the whole Alan Jones, Cameron Klein. Oh yes, thing. yep. I mean, you know, wow, <laughs> that was quite. I, you know, where do you start on that one? So. Basically, the ARU H, you know, HQ has been in hiding for six months. We've been talking about this on the podcast for a while now. Um, and then suddenly they come out and Cameron Klein decides to go, you know, he, he doesn't do a tame interview with Georgina Robinson or, you know, a whole <laughs> bunch of different people he could have talked to. He goes on the Alan Jones show live and gets absolutely roasted. And you can say it's unfair. I mean, Alan Jones did what he does perfectly. just doesn't let you draw breath, basically. Um, absolutely roasted him. So anyway, there's just that 
media decision was a pretty interesting one, to say the least. But the thing that came, and I'd be interested in what you guys thought as far as what you got out of that interview and the whole thing. But the thing that blew me away and just made me shake my head, you know, because I, I was feeling for Cameron as he got absolutely railroaded there by Alan. But when he tried to defend himself and say, no, 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 we really do have great connections with, with Aussie grassroots rugby. We have several wallabies on the board. Yeah, I know. And I just absolutely shook my head. And because, look, here's the thing is these are great players. They have spots in all of our hearts because we've watched them do great things on the field. And I've no doubt most of them are lovely guys. Uh, most of them I've ever met are. But to use the idea that by being a wallaby, you are either connected to the grassroots or a great businessman capable of making brave decisions in a rapidly changing business market are two things that are like neither of them are connected. I mean, number one is if you're a wallaby, it's unlikely you ever played like the sort of grassroots rugby that Hugh, a certain Hugh Cavill plays week in, week out. No, I'm saying dominates. Dominates week in, week out. I'm simply because you got plucked out of school, most likely, and you know made your way through, which we we all know is kind of the history. And then the second one is that you know you're not inculcated in Aussie rugby and basically is a cheerleader because what we need right now are people who can actually make you know, very strong, different decisions that could actually... And if you take that dangerous thinking that Ben Darwin just gave us, which is, guys, you need to completely rethink how you think about setting up pathways and talent and all sorts of things. If you talk to the nth degree what he's talking about, you're talking about you're going back to three super rugby teams, you're talking about fewer, um, uh, you know... Uh, you know, the third-tier team. A reshaping of the NRC, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're talking about all these things to set us up for success. That's the sort of stuff you'd be talking about, and I would bet these guys have known about what Ben's been talking about for several years, and that would be a very educated guess. So, and you know, so to tell me that, you know, oh, but no, no, we've got a bunch of wallabies on our board, that's what makes me shake my head and go, we are doomed, I tells you, doomed. Yeah, I think linking them to that connection to the grassroots was was probably a mistake from them. But it's it's, it's a high pressure situation, isn't it? Uh, getting railroaded by Alan Jones on his own show with his own audience there. But um, uh, yes, not a good look by any means. Um, Want to look get on to our next burning question? Question number four, and uh, this is the Aussie Sevens team. So a little bit of positive news: we didn't quite get a trophy, but on the back of third place in Hong Kong and a fourth place, a really gutsy fourth place in Singapore with um, some key injuries. Are we seeing a bit of a turnaround with our Aussie Men's Sevens team, Hugh? We are, we are, Reg. And if I um, to quote one Ben Darwin, I think it's um, continuity. <laughs> It's it a bit is, of continuity, yep. and, and they had a, you know, after the Olympics, there was a bit of a clear out. They lost guys like Palmer Foe and Cameron Clark and Tom Cusack, um, uh, and and so on. And they've had a, some Cooper. new blood come in. Um, <laughs> it's quite Cooper. I mean, what a what a legacy he left. Um, but the, the, the yeah, they're seeing guys come in. We've seen guys like Simon Kennewell and Charlie Taylor and and um, um, what's his name, Mac 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 something. Um, <laughs> having Take a mental break. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, oh, McNamara, yeah. sorry, Liam McNamara. Liam McNamara. Yep. 
um, Anstey um, and yep. you know, some really good players. And, and they've still got Henry Hutchison, James Stannard, um, Ed Jenkins um, to sort of give it some level of continuity. But all of a sudden, these guys have now played some, some tournaments together, played some time together, and they're starting to, to, to play some really good games. That game against South Africa where they, mm. they really had a lot of, you could tell that self-belief is just starting yep. to, to get there in the squad, and they've got some players, you know, John Porch is coming along really well too. So that, you know, yep. and they they did well to fight for fourth, and they were ravaged by injury. And I think in that last game there, they were pretty much down to their final player, which sort of told in those final few minutes. But look, certainly some really positive signs, and and I think it's getting back to what you know this what sevens used to be for us, and it might continue to be is a really useful development tool for 15s rugby. And I can see a lot of these players coming through and having having. Um, long and prosperous careers in, in 15s rugby. Simon Kennewell was one sensational. I think he's he was really fantastic, was Name to put in, name to put in your black book because he'll be he'll be hanging around a long time. Yeah, well, and Henry Hutchinson, we might see as soon as next year that if the rumours are true that he's off to the Rebels. So that'll be interesting. But I, I agree with you. And the, the one name you didn't mention was Tom Lucas, who was stood up oh, as yeah. captain this week. And I, jeez, I, I thought he was fantastic. He really stood up. I think last year we saw it with. Um, who skipped them last year? Uh, uh, I've got to reverse uh, the roles. Louis Holland. Yeah, Louis Holland. I've got to reverse the roles here. Who's going out with Charlotte Kasich? But yeah, Louis Holland. Yeah, Jesse Parahai, uh, uh Ed Jenkins. Sort of three captaincies down, and so Tom gets chucked the armband. And I thought he was fantastic on the weekend. But you're right; those names coming through are, are really exciting. But the continuity, like you say, really gutsy performances, and just you can actually see structure now. I know friend copped a lot of flack last year for not having any sort of real game plan, but I think. As we say, Betty Darwin nailed it. They were swapping teams every, you know, every tournament and trying to get some sort of combination. It just didn't work, and um, he's had a bit of consistency this year, which is fantastic to see. Still bringing some young players through, which is great. But um, yeah, it was it was awesome to watch uh, on the weekend uh, in Singapore. So well, well done to them. Well, I had my classic seventh experience, which was. Um I just started us, to, us taunting you on Twitter. Yeah, saying uh, yeah. So surely Matt's going to watch the game now as we uh, <laughs> got to the semi. So I turned the semi on and watched us get pumped. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. USA had the ball for about seven consecutive minutes. It was ridiculous. We didn't yeah, touch was, the ball. But yeah, how about well, quick shout out to Canada? Um, how about yeah, that? Uh, yeah, great to see another another nation chalking up their first ever win in sevens and and in a new age with semi-finals without New Zealand, South Africa, or Fiji. Um, which is fantastic. It just shows you how competitive the seventh is becoming. Yep, indeed. Um, all right, last burning question. We'll keep this pretty short. You don't have to go too much detail because we're still um, a couple of months away from uh, the first Wallaby test, but we'll be going through the positions, half back, uh, blindside flank. We're going to go full back tonight, um, and I want to know who's your 15 for the Wallabies, uh, Matt Rowley. Oh, geez, that's a... T- I mean, look... Uh... Look, we've done the Izzy it's it's at the centre thing in the in the in the Waratahs and I'm not sure anyone's convinced that probably pushes him back there somewhere. Having said that, I have a sneaking suspicion that he's always been a weakness in defence at fullback anyway. So you're probably talking about ideally putting him on the wing somewhere, but suddenly we've got a, a few wing options, that makes it all a bit yeah. difficult. Um, but yeah, look let's 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 accept that he's not a great technical fullback. And so, you know, who do you start to put in? Um, yeah, and I thought, um, you know, what's his name? Hunt from the Carmichael Hunt. Yeah, yep. from the Reds. I thought he had a. He's he's been having stronger and stronger matches. I think this year he's starting to come into his own um, and and really show, um, you know, what what he can add from from that position. Um, I, I must say also, I thought because obviously I've just got a, a Waratah eye patch on. 
Um, oh, Hegarty had a bit of a breakout game for him um, at 15. Gee, that is, that's, that's an eye patch. <laughs> half, half, well, he, he's had half a decent game, so he's a shoe for the Wallabies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Whoa. I'll, okay, I'll back. If, if, if Hugh's calling me on it, I'll back away from that one. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Matthew Checker. <laughs> what about you, Hugh? Have you got uh, a different perspective? Or? Yeah, look, I've got a different perspective. I think the guy, look, I think Izzy Falau is, for the first time in his career, really in danger of losing a spot, whether he gets bumped to the wing or bumped to the bench. The guy I'd like to see at fullback is Kurtley Beal. He's coming right. back yeah. from the UK. He's been playing a, a bit of fullback <laughs> wasps, and he's been looking bloody good. Someone with a bit of counter-attacking threat with a kicking game. Um, I'd like to see him there to, to spark up our counter-attack. Yeah. Dane Hallett-Petty on the wing, and either Izzy or you can put Seth Naivalo there because, geez, he looked good on on Saturday night too. Yeah. yeah, I think Bill got man of the match on the weekend. Again, he, he is literally killing it. Well, not literally killing it over there, but he is, <laughs> he is doing it. Well, he's been driving. Over there, so. <laughs> <laughs> you've got what he's been doing very well. That Waratah eye patch, you've got that. Yeah, you got that off me here. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think they're all great candidates, and I think Bill, if he's available, it would be an excellent one. It just depends who plays twelve. We might need him at twelve more than we need him at fifteen. Because I'd have Carmichael mm-hmm. there. I think he adds a lot to the team, and his defence is fantastic. He's reading the play well. His counter attacks sensational as well. So he hasn't had a lot uh, of wallaby bro- time though, has he? Sorry, he hasn't had a lot of wallaby time though, has he? Zero oh, minutes. No, mate. No, nothing at all. To get the combination, he's gonna we're gonna to have to be quite at ten though, but we'll talk about that another night. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's gonna to have to wrap us up for this show. It's a, it's a great show. We again appreciate uh, Benny Darwin for coming on uh, and having a good chat, lads. Anything to uh, finish us off with at all? Just that it's been a long time since we had a podcast, um, you know, reference on iTunes, um, or a uh, review is review? what I'm looking for. So, um, yeah, go, get in there. Let us know what you think. Make it a, make it a cracker, and it'll get read out. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Oh.